Revelation 11, verse number 1. Seriously now, this is the Word of God, this is important, and it's definitely something that we need to know based on this day and age that we live in. And there was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court, which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. There are certainly a connection between these first two verses and Daniel's prophecy. Jesus even referred to Daniel's prophecy, where Daniel referred to the abomination of desolation. We don't have time to teach that, but just wanted to throw that in, that there is a connection between those two passages of Scripture and these two verses. Then in verse number 3, And I will give power unto my two witnesses. Of course, this is the mighty angel of chapter 10 that we have declared to be uh, a Christophany, an appearance of Jesus Christ in a different form. And they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. These, speaking of the two witnesses, are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. If you have read the Old Testament, you know that this phrase appears in the book of Zechariah in his prophecy. Verse 5, And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. Wouldn't that be handy to have? We at our security meeting the other night, we appreciate Brother Don Burton, the things that he uh, taught us from his many, many years of experience and all of our security personnel that are continually training in order to help keep this place safe. And we talked about different threats and how to handle that. This would come in pretty handy, you know, if, if, if as a preacher, as a preacher up here, if I had that, it's like y'all would be safe, just might want to move out of the way when the bad guy comes in, Right. All right, and verse 6, these have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite uh, the earth with all plagues as often as they will. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. Their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. This is Jerusalem, by the way. And in this prophecy, the Lord refuses to refer to it as Jerusalem because during this time period, until Israel repents, God says, this is Sodom and Egypt. That's not a compliment. Those are not two cities that you want to be associated with. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. We've had times in our lifetime, I can think of the Twin Towers incident and various different 
wars and conflicts in which if you had any news media access, whether it be local news or CNN or Fox or MSNBC, where certain events take place where it's on there 24-7, where all you get is that particular news event. I would assume that when this happens, it's going to be on CNN. They're going to be continually showing the dead bodies of these two witnesses laying on the street of Jerusalem. It's going to be something that the whole world, the world's not going to see this as gruesome. They're going to be rejoicing that these two men are dead. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood upon their feet and great fear fell upon all them which saw them and they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, come up. Uh, hither, and they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. In the same hour there was a great earthquake. The tenth part of the city fell, and in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand, and the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. So much we could talk about in this passage, but we're going to focus on one particular aspect. The majority of the chapter or the text that we just read is talking about these two witnesses. And so that's what we're going to talk about here this morning is the two witnesses. Join me as we ask the Lord to bless our study and message today. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for telling us some things that are going to happen in the future. Thank you for giving us uh, clues and references and information that we can piece together and understand what your word is telling us. And we thank you, Lord, especially for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Brother Ralph talked about it when he prayed over the service today. He talked about if anyone doesn't know Jesus Christ, they need to get saved today. And I appreciate that he said that. And Lord, I'm praying also that if anyone is listening today that is without Jesus Christ, God, we ask that you'd speak to their heart. And while today's sermon is not specifically a evangelistic gospel message, we know that the presence of God and the truth of your word, you can certainly draw men to you. And Lord, most people around us, not everyone, but many, and probably most that are listening here today, they know that Jesus died on the cross for them. They know about your death, burial, and resurrection, but Lord, too many people just haven't personally received you as Savior, or maybe they prayed a prayer, but they never have truly repented of their sin. And Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit would have your will and way, however you see fit to use this message, we pray that you would just please use it in a mighty way, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You may be seated. So this is a continuation of the parentheses of the previous chapter, the parentheses we talked about last week between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. The angel, Christ, is revealing a particular narrative that will take place during the last half of the tribulation period. That is Jacob's trouble, Daniel's 70th week. It's a seven-year 
period of time that is divided up into two three-and-a-half-year periods. And you might have already noticed that that three-and-a-half appears repetitively through just the small portion of Revelation that we just read. And that's not the only place that we find the significance of these two separate three-and-a-half-year periods of time. During this time when this narrative takes place, the temple will have been rebuilt in Jerusalem. Now, there have been two, or you could make an argument, three different temples. You had Solomon's temple that he built in his day. You had a rebuilding of that temple by Zerubbabel. We read about that in the book of Ezra, and many of the minor prophets make reference to that. And then that one was completely destroyed somewhere in that time period of the 400 years um, but between the end of the Old Testament and the time of Jesus Christ. And then we find that the temple was rebuilt by Herod, and uh, that was the temple that was referred to in the New Testament in the days of Jesus Christ. And that temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And you might say, well, if Herod built it, then was it legitimately a temple? Well, Jesus went in there and he said, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. So Jesus himself declared the temple that Herod built as the house of God. And once again, it was destroyed in 70 AD. It had been destroyed, I can almost say emphatically, if, you know, our chronology of history is correct, it, it appears that this was written, Paul, John was writing this in 96 AD, the temple that Herod built had already been destroyed. So John's not seeing here on this earth Herod's temple, he's seeing a new one that has been rebuilt. And I believe that the prophecies of the book of Ezekiel are consistent with that concept. It is not impossible that we may see this happening or things related to it happening before the rapture. What I'm talking about is the rebuilding of the temple. We find all kinds of sensational prophetic teachings, oftentimes just to sell books or to make a name for themselves. I've heard things where they talk about, oh, they get all excited. They found the ashes of the red heifer. Some of you have heard that, and maybe you've seen internet articles and so forth. There isn't the ashes of the red heifer. There are ashes of and red heifer. That when the priesthood is reestablished, then they'll have to find a pure red heifer and they'll have to kill it and burn it and all the ashes they'll sprinkle in water and they'll have to use that holy water. That's the real holy water in the Bible. They'll have to sprinkle the garments of the priesthood and the rebuilt furnishings of the temple and everything because that is the water of purification. It's not something that they're going to find. And I know even they, you know, they brought seven red heifers into Israel. It's, there's no big deal about these red heifers. They're just trying to be sensational. Listen, I, I, I hope and I pray that we see some of these things happening and the rapture is going to take place in my lifetime, but I don't need some sensational connection between a current event and the word of God to make me to believe that. It's imminent whether they're, whether, I don't care if they, if they ship a thousand red heifers over to Israel. 
It doesn't change a single thing. And I'm being a little sarcastic because we need to be wise. We need to be smarter than this in studying our Bible. And if we would spend more time in the Word of God rather than reading religious periodicals and commentaries, then I think we'd be a whole lot better off. I'd like to see this happening, and we may see it begin to happening. But it is likely, in my opinion, that it will happen in the first three and a half years of the tribulation when the mystery of iniquity is manifest in the man of sin. The mystery of iniquity is going on today, but during that first three and a half years of the tribulation period, the man of sin, the Antichrist, is going to be working, and I believe that's when... He's going to have a treaty with Israel, and in the middle of that seven-year period, he's going to break that treaty. And I think that probably that alleged peace treaty with Israel, there's going to be a connection with him having their temple rebuilt, because there's probably nothing more important to the Jew than having their temple and their priesthood restored there in Jerusalem. Now, look at verse number two once again. And it says that the Gentiles are going to trample the outer court and the city they'll tread underfoot 40 and two months. Now, 40 and two months, I can even do the math there. That's three and a half years. That's significant. And so the first thing that we want to focus on here about these two witnesses is what we know. What we know. There are some facts that we just read about that before we start getting into the speculation of identity and all of the things that are controversial and talked about, let's focus on what we know as absolute. Our text reveals some of them. First of all, they will prophesy. It says right here, several occasions, that they will prophesy. We find it in verse number 3. We find it in a verse later on there. They're going to prophesy. Now remember that prophesying does not always mean foretelling the future. To profess something is for us, I'm, pro- I'm prophesying in one sense of the word right here and right now. I am professing to you some truth that comes from God. That's what a prophecy is. Now, it doesn't appear to me, this is my opinion, I don't know what they're going to be saying. I don't know what their prophesying is going to entail. I promise you, though, it's going to be nothing like Joel Osteen. And I've read commentaries that say that these two witnesses will be, you know, presenting the gospel to the whole world. Listen, the church is raptured. I I don't see these two witnesses preaching a gospel is good news. I don't see these two witnesses bringing a whole lot of good news to this earth. Now, it's good news in the fact that it's true, and they are warning the whole world of what they're doing wrong. But listen, this is not going to be anything like what we've seen in our lifetime as far as evangelization and preaching a good news gospel. Consider Jude 14. Now, Enoch was a man who prophesied. 
And it, it, as we think of good news and we tell people about Jesus and, you know, when we preach the good news, I, we quote John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Jesus loves you and he died for your sins. I love being able to preach that message. There's no greater joy or privilege, but Enoch's message wasn't the same as this. It says in Jude verse 14, and Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these saying, behold, the Lord cometh with 10,000s of his saints, what to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed. That word ungodly sure is negative, isn't it? And of all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's what Enoch was prophesying. It's not a gospel message here. I believe that these two men are prophesying and it's a message of doom. We find here in our text that they're going to be prophesying in verse number three, 203 score days clothed in sackcloth. All right, once again, we have a connection. Now look down here at, um, I got to find where I'm at here. Forgive me, I'm, I, I misplaced my, um, what I was trying to say here. Let me move on here. We know from our text here that they are referred to as the two olive trees and the two candlesticks. I think I mentioned when we were reading our text that this comes from Zechariah chapter 4 and verse number 11, where Zechariah says, Then answered I and said unto him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof? And I answered again and said unto him, What be these two olive branches which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? And he answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then said he, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. I want you to... Just look at verse number 14 once again. These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. They're standing by the Lord. That's an important phrase right there. And obviously the Old Testament here in Zechariah says that these olive trees are two anointed witnesses. We know that they are untouchable that they miraculously are powerful and they're going to have power to keep their enemies from causing them any harm for three and a half years. We know that they will be killed by the beast who's going to make war with them. Now, when I see that make war, I don't see this as a gladiator battle between the Antichrist and these two witnesses. When it says that the Antichrist or the beast shall make war with them, I think that the Antichrist is going to send whatever military might that he commands and it's going to be a, uh, it's going to be a military force of great magnitude in order to kill these. I mean, it's going to take more than just sending in a SEAL team. It's going to take a war in order to overcome these two witnesses. They will be killed by the beast. The world will rejoice that they are slain. 
Their bodies will be left to rot in the streets of Jerusalem, but God will resurrect them three and a half days later. And then in verse number 12, we see that these two will be raptured. They're going to be caught up, two individuals up miraculously into heaven. Now, all of those are facts that are undeniable. We just read them in their text. We're not making any assumptions or drawing any conclusions. We're just simply declaring that which is so. And so that brings us to point number two. Who are these two witnesses? Now, before I get into the Bible study and all that, just bear with me here a moment. As uh, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna talk very, um, very culturally, very progressively here. I think that it is without argument that we could say that the greatest influence of modern culture, without question, is Disney. I don't think that there's a whole lot of room for argument there. You can do some research if you want, and it's amazing how many different aspects, religiously, socially, in areas of gender. I mean, children grow up with Disney, and they grow up with uh, access and understanding to all types of uh, social and religious cultures, whether it be Asian religion whether it be different types of religion and beliefs and viewpoints. They have different, uh, they, children have grown up with certain opinions about morals and about values. And according to the pro- progressives, this world has become a much better place. We are much more understanding and much more tolerant of one another. I mean, can you imagine some of you that are grandparents, some of you older people that were alive before Bambi, how many of you ever thought that it was bad to go and kill a deer? I I still don't, by the way. Now, I know you're going to get quiet on me here. I knew it. And you know what? I love you, so I don't care. I don't care if you get quiet on me, all right? It's a fact. We know it. The influence that Disney has had on our culture. There are things that we take for granted, the way that we think, the way that we view this world. And listen, it didn't all come from Nancy Pelosi and Hillary Clinton. And I could go on and on and on. You know it. And so because of the massive amount of influence that Disney has had to make this world a better place, then we would have to ascertain that these two witnesses are definitely Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck. <laughs> Who else could it be, right? It, it has to be Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck. And I hope you understand that the last few minutes of conversation have been very sarcastic, very facetious. Uh, By the way, I mean, you can recognize a religion. You, you You can recognize a religion by the fact that people will defend it even when the truth exposes what it really is. People will blindly defend their religion. They'll make pilgrimages to their holy places. They will support their religion financially. 
You know, speaking of which, you know what? All this stuff, I, I have never, I can remember back when all of the agendas were certainly a little more subtle than they are today. I can remember, I can remember taking criticism for uh, buying a Big Mac at McDonald's and buying lumber at Home Depot and getting coffee at Starbucks. And, and I know that, listen, when it comes to boycotts, it is impossible to be consistent with boycotts. But that doesn't mean that boycotts are a bad thing or a wrong thing. Why, why would we financially support an entity that is destroying our country when we have a choice that we could spend our money on a company or a product that is not? Do you know how malicious that Target has been in trying to destroy? They have, they have intentional products that are influencing children toward Satanism, toward LGBTQ. It isn't subtle, folks. It is militant. And I know, hey, I don't know what's going on with the CEOs of Walmart. I don't know if it's any better. But listen, I'm going to spend my money on something that I don't know. If I've got a choice, I'm certainly not going to spend my money somewhere that is militant and everything that is against God in the Bible and is destroying our kids. Why would I, why would I spend money on Target? And by the way, all of you Christians, stop buying Bud Light. Think of the influence in our culture. What has influenced our culture more, Walt Disney or the KJV Bible? Today, it's certainly Disney's had much more influence over the mentality and the way that we think. And that's the reason that so many preposterous things with LGBTQ and socialism and everything, people will go contrary to what history has proven to be harmful and false. And you know what? People just go blindly right into it. Why? Because that's their religion. If I have a choice, I'm not going to spend money on those things. I'm going to stay away from those places. Now, I'm not going to criticize you if you do. I'm not going to attack you. But I am teaching you that we, we ought to do what we can. And you know what? The Dodgers are being boycotted right now by good God-fearing people. Bud Light's being boycotted, I'm guessing, by good God-fearing people. <laughs> and even Disney is getting some flack from good God-fearing people because of their agendas. But... I'm going to tell you how this works. I've said it before, and I've I've seen it so consistent. I learned this from my father-in-law, Brother Runyon, and I'm telling you what, he had a lot of wisdom in this. This is the way the devil works. All this stuff comes up, and God's people get incensed, and they rise up against it, and they boycott it, and they fight against it, and it starts hurting these companies and entities financially, and so they back off. And they take some of that stuff off of their shelf. Or they get rid of their spokesperson who's transgender. And they, 
they, they accommodate all of that because it's hurting them financially, and so they back off, and Christians and God-fearing people who believe in morality, they go, yeah, we won, and then we relax, and then they come back and they just ease it in a little bit at a time, and we don't even say anything, we don't do anything, we just get used to it and so accustomed to it so that there can be a Disney movie five, six years ago that has a homosexual little five-second blurb in it, and Christians are saying, what's the big deal? If you blink, you'd missed it. Until now, you got the Buzz Lightyear movie that is all out LGBTQ agenda, and you know what? Nobody's just, nobody's saying anything about it. What does this have to do with the two witnesses? Well, I'm telling you, The two witnesses are going to show up in a time where what we're experiencing in the spiritual and moral condition of this world, it's going to get so bad that these two witnesses, they're not out there trying to win anybody per se. They're just representing God and the whole world is going to hate their guts and some people are going to try to attack them and God has given them a special power where they can have a they can have a flamethrower come out of their mouth and devour them and you know after that happens a couple times i mean even the captains of 50 that went after elijah about the third time that captain comes up and says um excuse me man of god if you don't mind you know would it be okay if you come with me to see the king cuz the other two said come come down thou man of god and Elijah said, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down. I mean, just destroying them one after another. We have such a perverted, messed up view of God and truth in the Bible that we can't even fathom those things. Do you think that God was laying awake all night after that happened? No, I feel so bad for those 50 soldiers. He didn't, God wasn't feeling bad about that. They were wicked and evil. You're not going to hear that from modern preachers. All right, so moving on into Bible truth. The Mormons teach that these two witnesses are the Bible and the Book of Mormon. All this this Disney thing, Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck, I, I, I want you to see there's a reason that I did that other than just an excuse to preach against Disney and Target and all that. It's a mentality You know, the Mormons see, well, these two witnesses are the Book of Mormon and the King James Bible. Mary Baker Eddy White, the founder of the Seventh-day Adventist, taught that it was the Bible and their writings, the key to the Scriptures. One commentary spoke of John Calvin. I I wasn't able to find him saying this, but I found others who said that he said this, that he claimed that the two witnesses here in Revelation 11 were the Old Testament and the New Testament of the Bible. And, you know, there were so many things that I read about this commentary that puts this whole setting in the church age, preaching the gospel, and one said that it's the it's the the Holy Spirit, and I, I don't, I, there were so many things that the reasoning and the logic and the way to determine truth was no different than what I just did with Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck. 
Now, it is the strong conviction of this preacher. I, I, I'm not even, I don't think opinion does it. I, I feel, I'm certain personally that I'm right. You'll have to make that decision for yourself. But I believe that these two witnesses are undoubtedly Moses and Elijah. Now, I don't have time to give you all the references here, but consider these Bible facts. And these are facts. Number one, both Moses and Elijah had miraculous power over their enemies. Secondly, both had miraculous power over the elements and nature. I mean, Moses brought hail and fire and brimstone down. He turned water to blood. You have Elijah who said it's not going to rain for three and a half years, and that's exactly what happened. They both had those type of miraculous uh, power over nature. Uh, number three, they both left the earth in unconventional ways. All right, Moses died up on the mountain, and then you have you have the devil and the archangel battling over the body of Moses. So the Mo- the body of Moses was important, I believe, because he's going to show up later on. Of course, Elijah was taken up in a whirlwind. Uh, both spent 40 days and nights without food on Mount Sinai, and both of them heard directly from God. Five, both appeared at the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. Elijah is prophesied to show up before the return of Christ. Malachi 4, 5, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And then, of course, there's a connection between Elijah and John the Baptist. Matthew eleven fourteen. and if you will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. If Israel would have received the message of John the Baptist, if they would have received the gospel of the kingdom, then the prophecy about Elijah showing up would have been fulfilled in John the Baptist. And so he asked the question, was John the Baptist Elijah? The answer is yes and no. No, he wasn't because in retrospect, Israel didn't receive it. You say, that doesn't make sense. Well, then you have a little tiny God. There was no big deal for God whatsoever who knows the beginning from the end. And then Elijah states himself in 1 Kings 17.1 that he is a man who stands by the Lord and we read that in Zechariah 4.14 uh, already. Now, what about the possibility of one of these? For most people, it's like Elijah's a slam dunk. But uh, some think that it's one of these witnesses could have been Enoch. And the, the logic behind that is it's a legitimate logic. I don't agree with it. But Hebrews 9.27 says... And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. And let me back up. Some believe that that one of the witnesses is going to be Elijah because he didn't die. And so he'll have to die here. And then Enoch, because he was taken up and didn't die. And it's appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. Everybody has to die, so this must be Enoch. I understand the argument. But I also notice that the verse says it's appointed unto men once to die, and we do have exceptions in which men died more than once. Lazarus died more than once. And so I think what they're doing is they're taking, they're, they're just taking a passage and going too far with it. Listen, 
if we get raptured out of here, none of us are going to die. So there, there are certainly, and I believe that Enoch is a type or a picture of the raptured church. So I believe that uh, the two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. Number three, why is there any question or controversy? I, I could have listed half a dozen more things easily. We could have went to the verses and looked them up. And if you cross-reference all of those references that back up that list I just gave you, you will see other interesting, significant things that connect these two witnesses to the ministries of Moses and Elijah. So why is there so much question or controversy? Well, I'm amazed at most Bible commentaries. Paragraph after paragraph of commentary about a passage without ever addressing what the passage actually means. I'll tell you what, I get frustrated reading Bible teachers, men that are way smarter than me, and I know that's why I'm reading their commentaries, like, help me out, I want to understand. And then I'll read paragraph after paragraph, and when I get done, it's like, they didn't answer any questions. They never addressed what the passage is saying, they just took anything in the passage and they started just going down all of these religious talk about everything about it, but never actually addressing it. Well, the Scripture gives us the keys to Bible exegesis. That word exegesis, the meaning of it is to draw out the truth that's there. And listen, so much of Christianity, even among King James Bible believers today, even among King James Bible believers here in the Bible Belt, here in the South, there is so little Bible exegesis. You go to so many churches and boy, you'll get, you'll get some cheerleader sermons to try to get you to shout or get you to feel something emotionally. And they'll read a passage and they'll use that to invoke an emotion, but you'll leave and never actually know what the passage says and what it means. Hey, it's the Bible doctrine and the meat that's going to get you through the tough times. Knowing what's really going to happen. I mean, listen, funerals are just are ridiculous sometimes with sentiment that's so anti and contrary to the Bible. I'll refrain from saying any of them because a lot of people get offended when I start talking about some of the sentimental nonsense that people think about their loved ones that are in heaven, like they, they went back to heaven. They, they didn't start out in heaven. That's reincarnation. I, know, I said I wasn't going to say it, but I'm saying it. <laughs> Another angel just went home. No, that's not true. We're, we're, we're men. We're descendants of Adam. We didn't, we didn't exist before. We didn't go back home. I understand the sentiment, but listen, there's some of that stuff that People hear that and then they start drawing conclusions that they don't read the Bible and they're not familiar and so somebody comes along with some other idea and they just jump right onto it because, well, that's consistent with what I've been taught. The scripture gives us the keys and I'll give you these to you real quickly. Got five more minutes. You ready? Buckle up. 
first of all, context. Context. You can't understand what a passage means if you don't take it in its proper context. John 5.39, Jesus said to the Pharisees, search the scriptures for in them, the scriptures he's speaking of, ye think ye have eternal life and they are they which testify of me. He's letting them know, look, you've been reading the Bible, but you're not taking it in context. You're using the Bible for your agenda rather than forming your agenda based on what the Bible says. Secondly, right division. Second Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And that is where the book of Revelation in most commentaries becomes a bunch of religious speaking nonsense is because they don't rightly divide the word of truth. They They assume that everything's about us and the church and the gospel, and they don't recognize that there are more than one gospels in the Bible, that the church is not the kingdom, it is not Israel. We are not part of the new covenant that God established with Israel. And if you read all of the implications of that new covenant, and you look around and you'd have to say, boy, that's true. Hey, the last time I checked... God didn't put all his laws in my heart and mind. I have to struggle to keep them. I have to surrender to the Lord. And there are so many things that just the religious world has made assumptions because they don't rightly divide the word of truth. The Jew and Israel is one thing. The church is another. There's different time periods. And you have the Old Testament law. And you have the New Testament. You have the tribulation. And you have the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And it's so important that we rightly divide all of those aspects. And I can learn something from your mail, but your mail isn't written to me. And vice versa. And then thirdly, comparing Scripture with Scripture. 1 Corinthians 2.13, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. We need to compare spiritual things with spiritual, and in many cases, in most cases, that's taking and that's cross-referencing the different passages of Scripture. Now, you can cross-reference a heresy also, I've seen it done. So let me take a connection between this verse and this verse and then draw a conclusion. But that's why we started out with context. And that's why it's also important that we rightly divide. And if we have the right context and we rightly divide, then many, many times we can put different passages and words together and the piece of the puzzle comes clear. And we just learned Bible doctrine and then... Uh, the next thing is spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity. Isaiah 28, verse number 9. Whom shall he teach knowledge, and whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts. we got a lot of spiritual babies today. All they want is the milk. It's true. And there's nothing wrong with babies drinking milk, but listen, after... I mean, I don't know what the age limit is for that, but it, it shouldn't be too many months, I would think. I, don't, I can't give you verse and Bible text, but 
I think it makes sense. You know, that there's a time we got to grow up and start eating other things and all of this emotionalism and all the stuff that appeals to your ego and your self-esteem and relationships and all of that's good milky stuff. But we've got to, we've got to grow up. And of course, if you ever wonder what spiritual immaturity is, read first and second Corinthians. Paul dealt with those aspects repetitively. And then in addition to that, Isaiah 28, verse number 10, the very next verse, you've got to build truth with truth. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. The redundancy there is to create an image that we've got to learn the Bible. And once we establish a truth, then it's going to help us to understand another truth. And there's a building block. Now, you've got to be careful If you believe something down here and you form a precept that's inaccurate, you better be careful that you don't build an additional precept on that inaccurate precept. Always, always understand obscure texts based upon the ones that are crystal clear. That'll keep you safe. That's what the 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 building inspector of Bible doctrine would say to you: "To hey, be be careful. Here's the here's the local um, guidelines and standards here when you're building something. Just don't build walls on a foundation that's faulty. Those are what the Scripture says to us that we're supposed to do in order to." Learn. That's honest Bible exegesis. Now, I've known good people and I've had friends that don't necessarily believe that the two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. I've said this before and I'll say it again is if someone is at least studying the Bible with honest Bible exegesis, not defending their alma mater or their guru or not being stubborn and not willing to see that, hey, what you previously believed is not correct. You need to change that. If they're honest in their assessment, I don't have to agree with them, but they don't have to become a heretic in my mind either. So this is why there are so many questions and controversies, not only about these two witnesses, but so many other things, is that we don't study and learn the Bible the way the Bible teaches us to study it and to learn it. And I close with this. These anointed ones are the Lord's witnesses. He said right there, these are my witnesses. And when I think about this, it's not just enough for us to learn about something interesting. Who are these two witnesses going to be? Finding out what's going to happen in the tribulation period. But what about you and I today? We're living in the church age. The trumpet hasn't sounded. And we're living in a world that's full of lost people. Most of which have no clue how to get saved. No clue, Brother Ralph, how that they can lay their head on their pillow tonight and feel secure that their sins are forgiven and that they're on their way to heaven. And the reason that they don't know is because we're not telling them. We're not telling them. We're too worried about things that really don't matter and never will matter. 
The Lord says of two men, he says, those are my witnesses. And you may say to yourself this morning, well, God hasn't anointed me. God hasn't, uh, you know, told me that I'm his witness. Are you sure? How about Acts chapter number 1 and verse number 8? But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. If you're saved, the Holy Ghost has filled you. God is inside of you. That's a pretty powerful aspect of life. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. That's what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be witnesses. We are anointed with the Holy Spirit. We have been given the power that we need to be a witness. You say, well, I'm just not good at talking to people. I don't have all the answers. Well, I'm just shy and I'm just awkward. You're saved, aren't you? Do I have a different Holy Spirit in me than you have in you? Does the preacher have a different Holy Spirit? Does the shy person have a different Holy Spirit than the person with the gift of gab? It's the same Holy Spirit. It's the same anointing. These anointed ones were the Lord's witnesses, but the question is, are you, are you a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ? If you're not, we need to be.